Hi everyone and welcome to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder and we're coming to you live from the RVN Television Studios. Today we're going to be talking about fixing work and I'm pleased to welcome my guest Thomas Bertels who is the founder and president of PurposeWorks Consulting and he's also the author of this book, Fixing Work. Thomas, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thank you, Dave. It's great to have you here. Before we get started, I've seen a lot written and spoken about the need to be fixing work. What's broken? Uh, I think there's a bunch of things that are broken. Um, we see turnover rates uh, that are unprecedented, right? I think about 5 million people months over months quit their job and look for something else. Um, we have the lowest level of engagement, um, according to Gallup, uh, in a, that we've seen in a number of years and the numbers are trending down. Um, and I think the pandemic, I think, has led a lot of people to really question the role of work in their life. And so I think there's really a crisis going on when it comes to work. Yeah, and we're going to unpack that. But I think before we do, let's, let's talk just a little bit about your background and what makes you an expert in the idea of fixing work. Sure. So, um, yeah, I started my career uh, in an industrial company called Azea Brombovary, ABB. Uh, and I worked there for a number of years and uh, got involved in some interesting transformation work which led me then to go into management consulting. And uh, I worked with a small boutique company up in Boston that became part of Aaron Consulting. And then myself and, and some colleagues started our own firm. But in 2020, I decided that I really wanted to go back uh, to my roots and really um, focus on improving work and, and, and redesigning work that's like fit for humans. And so that led me to start PurposeWorks Consulting. And uh, that's what we've been doing for the last two and a half years. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, when you're talking about fixing work, it's more of a process as opposed to a cultural change, if you will. Is that right? That's right. It's like the way we approach it is that we're looking at the actual workflow, uh, how people work, and then redesign that work in a way that meets like the what, what we as humans want from work. Um, and as we're doing that, we're doing that with the people who do the work, which is where the cultural change comes in. Okay, so the culture then is a byproduct of the process improvements. That's correct. That's interesting. I don't think I've had anybody on my show that, that spoke about it from that perspective before. So let, let's start to unpack this. You talked about, uh, you mentioned turnover, you mentioned engagement. Um, I'm familiar enough with the Gallup stats on engagement. It looks like about one-third of the workforce is engaged at any particular time. Uh, and it's been roughly in that zone for a very long time. What kind of process improvements do you implement that impact engagement? How do you get folks really leaning in to what they're doing? So if you look at, look at like how we mostly approach the design of work, um, it, it really is oftentimes unintentional. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when we construct a job, we basically, you know, we either have people already do it, a certain task, and we pile additional work on top. Right? I need this report done, I need this study done. Um, or when we restructure it, we try to find ways to make it as, as cheap and as efficient as possible. And so we end up dividing the work into small bits and, and chunks. Uh, and that makes it very difficult uh, later on for people to experience that work is meaningful because you don't have the sense of completion that you get when you do a, a task from start to finish. And people lose line of sight to what the customer of that work wants. And so as a result of that, uh, people really don't feel a sense of accountability either, right? And so what we're doing when we're redesigning work is we're trying to understand what's the entire job from start to finish and, and try to sort out how we can get a person to, or a team to do the whole task um, and, and, and basically be directly connected to a customer. 
And research has shown for the last six decades that if you do that, if you give people a whole job to do, um, that increases their motivation experience. This work is more meaningful. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can certainly relate to that. Early in my career, just learning the ropes in the valuation consulting space, uh, many of the junior analysts, including myself, were, were kind of constrained to be doing one particular piece of the puzzle. And we never got to see the big picture until further down the road. And that, that certainly was frustrating. So I, I totally get that part. But when you talk about bringing meaning to work, um, a lot of the things that I read and hear, meaning is larger than what somebody's doing day-to-day in terms of the completions of their task and in, in its totality, but more so the mission of perhaps the organization uh, that they're working with, something that's benefiting society. Uh, are you finding anything, Thomas, where maybe where if, if you don't fully check that second box, you're, you're still able to generate that engagement? Yeah, I think you can find meaning both. You're absolutely right, right? You can find meaning, or it's it's obviously great if the company has a noble purpose, right? You're, you're working on a cure for cancer. Uh, you're taking care of sick patients. Uh, you're educating right children or adults and, and, and giving them uh, a new career opportunities. Um, those are, I think, very noble purposes, and I think that's certainly inspiring for people in that space. But you can also find purpose in a sense of mastery that you have in your work, where you're really operating on top of your game and you use all your facilities, all your skills. And so I think, uh, you know, in, in my view, the sense of purpose and meaning can, can come from different areas. Gotcha. You mentioned turnover. I want to talk a little bit about turnover. So obviously during the pandemic, we experienced a great resignation. Uh, turnover rates, I don't think, were ever higher. Um, lately, I'm reading that the great resignation has turned into the great regret. What are you seeing currently in terms of turnover post-pandemic? Yeah, I, th- I think it's starting to settle down because right, people realize that the grass is not always greener. Right? Uh, and, and I think the, the issue is that when we have poorly designed work um, and, and, and people realize that you know the work is not satisfying and they go somewhere else, they're oftentimes attracted by the promise where the company says, right, this is, we've got a great culture. You have a lot of autonomy here. You can do all these things. But then reality as you go into that organization is that that autonomy is oftentimes very restricted. And what the job description says or what the job ad says doesn't really reflect the reality um, of, of what you encounter when you take that role. And so I think then people realize that, you know, it's kind of like we're all just cooking with water, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. There's no real difference. But I think there's also some companies who are approaching this differently and, and who are constructing jobs that are really worth doing. And I think that then becomes a competitive advantage because people don't leave a well-designed job. If you have a job that gives you meaning, where you have autonomy, where you know that you're doing, that you're performing at a, at a very high level, why would you leave that job for, for a job that's more fragmented, where you don't have that much autonomy and where you don't know how you're doing? Yeah, and I just want to continue the thread on the connection between the the job autonomy, the process, and the culture piece. Because they say, um, and it's been documented, that most people don't quit their job, they quit their boss. So in circumstances where you've got a good process, but there's tension between the employee and and their supervisor, what's been your experience there, and, and how do you build that bridge? I mean, obviously, the manager plays a huge role uh, when it comes to right, how, we, how we see the job. Um, but I think all these studies or, or, or many of these, these, these statistics, I think, tend to overemphasize, I think, the role of a manager. Um, and, and I think it, it's like if the job is not well designed, then 
the boss like becomes becomes an issue. But if the work is well designed, then oftentimes you can do the entire work from start to finish and be self-directed, and you don't really need your boss to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and and, and to check whether you've done the work. Right. So in my experience, if you design the work well, then it allows for people to really be be self-directed and self-motivated. And that reduces the need to, for supervision, which can also be very profitable for companies because now you don't need layers and layers of supervisors to make sure that people do the work. Yeah, and we're going to explore the, uh, the ROI of these process improvements uh, in the second segment. Um, Thomas, for folks who are watching and listening, if they want to learn more about you, how they can work with you, where they can get the book, how can they do that? So they can go to www.purpose.works. Uh, that's our website. Um, and they can also visit www.fixing-work.com to learn more about the book. Awesome. We've only got a few minutes to go here, figure roughly around three minutes, but I want to sneak in one more question before we got a break for a commercial to kind of tee us up for the second, second, second segment. Um, and that is, why should we care? Right now, there may be some folks watching and listening who may be thinking that, you know, the economy has taken a turn. Um, we're no longer in that period of great resignation. The, the power, if you will, has shifted back to the employer. Why does this matter? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. One, employees that experience work as motivating tend to be a lot more productive than, than employees that don't, right? And, and I think that intuitively obviously makes sense, right? If you're engaged in your work, if you feel connected to the purpose of the organization, right, you're going to have a different output than if you act actively disengage and you can't wait to get home. Um, the second thing is, I think, the cost of turnover. Uh, if you if you um, take like a typical knowledge worker job, let's say, you know, a customer service manager uh, or, or something along those lines, uh, most HR managers estimate that the true cost of to replace some a worker um, like that is about one to three times the annual salary. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? Because it takes, you hire people, it takes them six months to right, come up to speed and, and, and become productive. Um, during that period of time, other people need to help out and provide training and education. And obviously before, right, you even get to fill that position, right? Oftentimes the, the job sits idle for three to six months, so right, the colleagues have to jump in. And it puts a strain on the existing workers. Um, so I think those are real numbers. Now, the problem is that you don't see those numbers on the P&L. I mean, you're a valuation guy, right? And, and yeah. so you, you look at the numbers. Um, but, but I think the, one of the real problems is that it's like the cost is hidden all over your profit and loss statement. And it's not nicely captured in one part, which is why a lot of managers really don't, don't see the, the, the pressure to, to take action. Yeah. And like you said, in, in my world, I valued human capital throughout my career. And what you're talking about in this cost of turnover, I refer to as the intangible within the intangible. Um, it's, it's the nuanced stuff. It's, it's even more than just the learning curve. It's, it's the subtleties of you know, having worked with a group of people. You know when your boss is in a good mood and you can ask for funding for a project and so forth. So totally get that. Thomas, that's a good spot for us to pause here. So you watching and listening, don't go anywhere. We've got to pay a few bills. We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers. What makes a Wawa Club? Is it the crispy bacon on the turkey BLT? The endless layers of flavor of the buffalo chicken salad? Or is it a secret handshake? Nah. At Wawa, there's a club for everyone. Find yours today. 
We ride for those who died. The Police Unity Tour and RVN Television is bringing to you a show called On Your Honor, Straight Talk. And I'm your host, Patrick Monturi. I am a retired police chief from Florham Park, New Jersey, and I am also retired from the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial in Washington, D.C. I am currently, for the last 27 years, the CEO and founder of the Police Unity Tour. And this show will bring to you straight talk about law enforcement, the actions and heroism that is provided to you, the citizens of the United States, as well as their actions in falling in the line of duty, as we could see some of the stories that surround that. Again, please watch us on RVN Television and be safe. Take care. At Jersey Mike's, they slice your order fresh right in front of you. And let me tell you, watching that can send a rush of emotions through a person. Excitement, impatience, baby-like wonder, indecisive, anticipatory chewing, nervous pacing, happy claps, and finally, jealousy. Because that's this guy's sub. I should order one. Mm, good idea. Sliced right in front of you. The Jersey Mike's thing. A sub above. And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking about fixing work with Thomas Bertels, who is the author of this book, Fixing Work. Thomas, welcome back to round two. Uh, I want to talk to you about this book. Let's kick it off. Let's kick off this segment by talking about this. You said it's going to be out uh, in September, um, so later this year. What inspired you to write this? So there's a, there's a famous book called The Goal by uh, an Israeli author, uh, Eli Goldratt, that came out in the 1980s. Um, and it was for the first time that somebody took a business concept and, and, and explained it using a, a narrative or a fable um, format. Um, and it's been one of the, my, my favorite books ever since. I remember reading the book twice. And, and uh, a colleague just reminded me a couple of years ago that, um, back in 1998, I said, I want to write something like this. So this has been something that's been in the making for a long time. Um, because I always like the idea of, of teaching people something in a way that doesn't make it feel burdensome. Right? Everybody or many people read business books. Right? I have a, an expensive collection. I, I have also have to admit that I barely make it past page 20. Right? <laughs> because they're, they're long, they're dry, they're tedious. And they're all kind of repetitive. So I like the idea of like taking a real story. Um, that, that people can identify with and, and, and basically paint a picture of like what's like a, a normal middle manager in a normal company in America could do to create a better work product. Yeah, and I'm guessing that this story is something that's taken from your real world experience, yeah? Yeah, I mean, obviously like no, right, uh, the, the, the characters are completely fictional, but uh, they're based obviously on, on, on people I've met over, you know, the last 25 years. And so it, it's, uh, it's an amalgam of, of those characters. That's good stuff. Let, let's talk a little bit about what else is going wrong in the workplace. When you're brought in and you're, you're doing your diagnostic and figuring out the assessment piece on what needs to be redesigned, what are some of the typical red flags you might see? So one thing I, I've noticed more and more over the last 20 years is that technology, while intended to make us more productive, uh, oftentimes really has become an obstacle to get the work done. Hmm. Right? So computer systems don't talk to each other, uh, and so we end up using humans as, as like the middleware between these systems, as, as human interfaces. And that makes for incredibly dull work as people, right? 
download information into a spreadsheet, do some manipulations, then upload it back into another system. Um, I think another aspect how technology has negatively impacted the, the work world is that you know a lot of work when it comes to like white collar work gets done via email um, or via Slack messages. And, and I think that's just from a, a neuroscience perspective, incredibly damaging for us because we're being bombarded with messages in our inbox that, that say, you know, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. And so I think the average knowledge worker gets about like 300 emails a day. So that's these constant pings and reminders that, that interrupt us in our workflow and, and basically prevent us from doing real deep, meaningful, impactful work. Yeah, and I want to just uh, unpack that a little bit further when you talk about the neuroscience of the email interruptions. A lot of us naively believe that we're multitasking and there's been a lot of research uh, about that and in fact we're not multitasking, we're just not doing anything properly. What, what's your advice for folks who are getting those 300 email messages a day? Uh, do, do you recommend that they turn the email off between certain hours? Well, I, I think you redesign that. Yeah, oftentimes you need like an organizational answer to this, right? Because if I just unilaterally decide that I'm not going to reply to emails in the morning anymore, right? Uh, that that might not work for everybody else that right. I interface with, right? So um, I, I think there's a couple of things that organizations can do. One is to simply make um, standards uh, transparent. So, for example, what's an expect acceptable response time? Right? Is it like two hours? Is it like two days? Is it two weeks? Um, I think getting alignment on that, I think, is important. The second opportunity is really to take, uh, to, to get the work out of email into a different system that allows people uh, to avoid these constant interruptions. And, and there are some really, you know, smart workflow systems, collaboration systems that enable that. Um, people sometimes call them Kanban boards, where basically you put all the information, so like on a, on a little cart, right? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you have little stand-up meetings and people decide what to do next and they can go off and do this. Um, whatever it is, I think the important part is just to intentionally design it with the needs for humans in mind, uh, with, with the human needs in mind. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the drivers of motivation. You alluded to some of the things in the first segment in terms of getting work in a meaningfully constructed way where it provides meaning to the, the individual. But um, since you mentioned neuroscience, let's explore psychology. What, what are the real drivers of motivation beyond what you already talked about in terms of that workflow structure? Yeah. Um, so one is, I think, you know, it's like the meaningful work in itself, which is, I think that has a couple of components, right? As I mentioned earlier, to be able to do a task from start to finish, right? Uh, that gives people the sense of completion or it's like a, a detect that says, you know, I, I've been successful. Um, the second uh, element is that you're able to use a number of different skills, right? So you you can use your your, right, your thinking skills, your planning skills, your communication skills. Um, so, so if you kind of like take the classical example of like you know manufacturing work in a, on an assembly line, right? People just tighten one screw, right? It's incredibly monotonous, and people get really tired of it. So, the more you can use a diverse set of skills, the, the more uh, motivating you'll experience that job. The third part is like, does the work serve a larger purpose? If other people rely on you doing this work, this work is very important to others. Uh, that right, enhances this, this sense of meaningful uh, work. The second um, major area is autonomy. Um, and we as human beings, we're really wired to have uh, degrees of freedom 
and, and so, right, if you, if you're put into a situation where that autonomy is severely constrained, you're not going to experience that job as very motivating. On the other side, if you have a job where, you know, you're empowered, uh, your boss trusts you, that's going to uh, increase your sense of intrinsic motivation. And the third piece is knowing how you're doing, knowledge of the result. Yeah. Right. So the example is, I think, right, if you're playing golf, for example, right, you hit the ball, you see how far the ball went and you know what to do next. Right? Whereas if the work is not well designed, you don't get that feedback. So it's a little bit like you're bowling blindfolded. Right? You roll the ball, you knock over some pins, but you rely on somebody to tell you which pins you knocked over so you can adjust your performance. Got it. I don't want you to give away any secret sauce here, but if you could, can we talk a little bit about what goes into the process of redesign? I want to give the audience a, a feel for what it might be like to work with you and, and how you go about setting uh, businesses up for success. Sure. So um, the first step typically is to just get your hands around, like what's all the work that gets done, all right? And so let's say we're working with a, a department, um, let's say an accounting department. And, and so you really start out with like making a list of all the tasks that people do. And that's oftentimes eye-opening in itself, right? Because there's all this, these little bits and bobs of work that people are oftentimes not really conscious of, right? We gotta run this report, Right, on the third of every month, uh, we got to right, copy data from this database into another database. And the second part is then to understand how much time and effort goes against that. And again, that's oftentimes a real eye-opener because people realize that you know they have the equivalent of four people just copying data into a spreadsheet. Uh, and so oftentimes you see opportunities to eliminate silly, non-value-added work right away, right from the get-go. Uh, and that frees up time to do more meaningful work. Yeah. Right. And then from there on, you can, right, now you look at these, these, the, the workflow and you basically try to figure out, like, you know, is there a way that one person could do the whole job from start to finish? Or maybe a, a small team that works like hand in glove, right, could take care of the entire work product. And once you've done that, so maybe now you have like three little teams, right, that handle right, the entire affairs that a client might have with, with your organization. And then you could say, you could align those people directly to those clients or to those segments. Right, so yeah. they have a direct line of sight, direct accountability. How long does it typically take to go through a process like this? It can go as fast as three to four weeks and go as long as you know, six to nine months if you're dealing with like an entire organization. So I'm currently working with a client that's about a thousand people. And so we're, we're getting towards month seven of the engagement and we're starting to implement things. Yeah, and just to go into the numbers, you know, coming out from behind the numbers, if you will, uh, pun intended there, I want to go a little bit deeper into the ROI. You alluded to it in the first segment about uh, reducing turnover. Uh, besides getting a workflow that's more organized and efficient, what other uh, benefits can companies expect to receive from doing this? So one is that you oftentimes get a better customer experience, a dramatically better customer mm. experience, right? Because instead of dealing with right, seven different people and being transferred 19 times, right, the way we redesign the work, you oftentimes have like a single point of contact that can address a lot of the questions that you have, right? So it creates a better customer experience. Um, the second thing it does, it actually delivers a, a real cost reduction because you oftentimes don't need as many managers and supervisors to make sure that people do the work. And that can be quite substantial. And oftentimes, so when you ask people to do a, a whole job, something from start to finish, um, oftentimes that also requires that you pay them a little bit more because they take more responsibility, right? Yeah. But that's more than offset, I think, by the savings that you get by, by requiring less managers and supervisors. And, you know, it's like in, in my experience, in a lot of organizations, the average span of control is two or three people, 
right? So every manager has like two or three direct reports. If you go to a motivational work design, you can oftentimes broaden that extensively because people need less supervision. So maybe now you just need one manager for every 15 people. Yeah. Thomas, for anybody who's watching or listening and wants to work with you, how can they reach out to you? So the easiest way to reach out to me is go to our website, www.purpose.works, uh, and, and shoot us an email. Or you can reach out directly to me at thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at purpose.works, uh, and send me an email. Awesome. Thomas, can we talk a little bit about agile decision-making and how that impacts the redesign of workflow? Absolutely. So uh, agile decision-making, I mean, one way to look at it is simply right, who gets to make the decision. And in many organizations, right, decision-making has become fairly concentrated at the top. Right? So, um, so it, it requires to escalate right, uh, things all the way up the food chain and then get an answer and then it cascades all the way down again. Uh, that becomes a very slow process. Um, and uh, I think the easy way to see that is just to think about like how long does it take, for example, to um, get approval for hiring a person, right? Uh, yeah. uh, adding a headcount. And in most organizations these days, right, it goes all the way to the top of the organization because we're really, really right, worried about right, adding more headcount and more cost to the organization because unfortunately that's how we right, tend to look at employees um, as a cost. So again, if you like, think about agile decision making, right? You, you want to drive the decision making down to the lowest possible level in the organization. Um, I think Peter Drucker, right, was the person who really shaped um, it's like how we think about management um, in, in, a, in a very fundamental uh, manner. Said back in the 1960s and 1970s that we should design the jobs of managers uh, that you, you can't possibly define the job big enough. Right? So you should always strive to make the job as, as big as possible and give that person room for growth. And I think if you, if you, if you take that piece of advice, right, which we gave us like six, seven uh, decades ago, and you look at what people actually do, we're doing the polar opposite, right? Hmm. We're creating all these jobs and we're taking all the authority and all the decision making out of it. So the idea is really to move the decision making as close to, um, as close to the customer, as close to the point of impact as possible. And companies do that. I mean, Southwest yeah. Airlines, I think, is famous for giving, you know, their, their, right, their gate agents enormous uh, autonomy in terms of doing the right thing. Yeah. We've got about 90 seconds here, so you're on the clock. But I want to give you a last word in terms of giving the audience an opportunity to understand some tips or actions that they may be able to take. You know, obviously not a, a full process improvement, but is there something that they can do this afternoon that's going to make a difference in the organization? Yeah, I think, I think one thing that they might want to do is really take at some of the workflows that they have and look at how many people are involved to do the whole job from start to finish. Uh, and, and if that answer is, you know, 10 or more, that might create an opportunity to redesign the work. Excellent. Thomas, we are out of time, but I want to thank you for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's been a pleasure. And we've been talking with Thomas Bertels today, who is the author of this book, Fixing Work. Make sure you grab your copy as soon as it hits the market. Again, my name is Dave Bookbinder, and I'm the one that my clients turn to when they want to know what their most important assets are worth. I'm also the author of the new ROI series, Return on Individuals. You can check me out at newroi.com. And I want to thank you out there for watching and listening. We can't do this without you and your support. Please crush that subscribe button so you stay in touch with all that we're up to. We typically drop a new episode every week. That's all we have here for today. We'll see you next time on Behind the Numbers. Take care, everybody.